This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Elizabeth Englehart, one of the editors of the new collection, The Food We Eat, The Stories We Tell, Contemporary Appalachian Tables from Ohio University Press, and with Courtney Ballastier, one of the contributors to the volume. Elizabeth Englehart is the John Shelton Reed Distinguished Professor of Southern Studies in the Department of American Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Her family roots in Western North Carolina extend back to the 1700s. Among her publications are A Mess of Greens, Southern Gender and Southern Food, The Tangled Roots of Feminism, Environmentalism, and Appalachian Literature, and The Larder, Food Studies Methods from the American South. Um, Elizabeth's co-editor will not be joining us today, but Laura Smith directs the Appalachian Impact Fund, a social impact investment fund focused on economic transition and opportunity in eastern Kentucky. And Smith is a founding member of the Appalachian Food Summit and a writer. Courtney Ballester is a writer whose work focuses on the intersection of place and identity, particularly her native Appalachia. Her writings have appeared in a variety of publications, including The New Yorker Online, Lucky Peach, The New York Times, Bon Appetit Online, and many others. Her writing has been nominated for a James Beard Foundation Journalism Award and a Pushcart Prize. She's a board member of the Appalachian Food Summit and host of her own writing podcast, WMFA, a podcast about how and why we write. So thank you, Elizabeth and Courtney, for agreeing to speak with me on the podcast. Thank you for having us. It's such a pleasure, Carrie. Well, let's start with you, Elizabeth. How did you come to food studies? From from what academic backgrounds, from what personal roots? How did you get here? That's such a fun question for me. And Carrie, it's fun to talk to you here about Appalachia since you and I first met in your home state or of <laughs> Texas. Right. So that's right. <laughs> now we're coming back around to mine. Um And indeed, I think I started writing about food very early in my academic career. I was finishing up my dissertation and actually had handed it over to my committee to look at it. And I had a little bit of free time and I opened up my folder that I always keep running of stuff that doesn't fit in the current project. And I just noticed that there was a lot of material about food in the mountains that had somehow made its way there. So my very first article that I wrote about foodways uh, came out of that folder, and it was about biscuits and cornbread in Appalachia. But I think I could also say that I've been paying attention particularly to food and gender uh, probably for most of my life. I um, uh, write about in the uh, acknowledgments of Amessa Greens, a um, 
moment where I got very mad as a fifth grader in the Hendersonville public school system where uh, there was a, um, I think it was probably a colonial revolution history unit. I don't, that part's a little fuzzy to me, but somehow they wanted to have a picnic where the girls had to cook a basket and the boys had to bid on a basket. And I thought that was just the most unfair thing ever. Uh, And in my fifth grade feminist rage, uh, my mom finally talked me out of a tree and I ended up over at my grandmother's house and she taught me how to make fried chicken and biscuits. So (laughs) good can come from moments where you're thinking, what is going on with with food and what's it telling me? (laughs) Courtney, how did you come to write about food? Oh my goodness. You know, similarly, I kind of stumbled into it and then realized that I had been thinking about it forever. Um, I come from, you know, like like so many Appalachian writers who have a, a penchant to writing about food. It starts with my grandmother. Um, but, but it really wasn't until graduate school, I got an internship at a food magazine. Um, and I started to realize how much food was a part of my family and how, what a topic of conversation it was and what a ritual it was. And, and it sort of became fused then for me with having left home and sort of the complicated feelings that I, that I had around that. Um, and then, and then I just kind of went from there. Yeah. And then I was, I was lucky to find Ronnie Lundy pretty early on and, and make some, some friends in the Appalachian crowd and sort of was able to develop that, that interest more and more. So you know, I should, reading, oh, Terry, I should, I should call off, call out Ronnie also, because in fact, that very first article that I wrote about food, uh, Ronnie was the first editor of that article. Mm-hmm. So I had written it in an academic way and she reached out to me and wanted to publish it in one of the uh, collections that the Southern Foodways Alliance was doing at that point of uh, food writing each year. And she challenged me to write it in a more popular way. And I learned so much from her over the course of that. I love oh, that's that. wonderful. <laughs> um, just from reading your bios, uh, you both seem to be involved, and in, and Laura too, with the Appalachian Food Summit. Tell us a little bit more about that, Elizabeth. Yeah, so that uh, you know, let me get at that through this particular book. I had uh, in my role as a food series editor for Ohio University Press as a book series editor. Uh, I had reached out to Laura because I knew that she was working on a thesis. Um, based on the uh, uh, work that becomes her chapter in this book about her uh, grandmother's cookbook and and what it told about her family. And I had reached out to her and said, would you be willing to turn that into a book-length manuscript? I'll work with you on it. I really think it's a story that should be out there. And Laura very wisely said, no. (laughs) And what she (laughs) said was, actually, there's so much interesting going on in Appalachia right now. This group that we are all involved in, in the Appalachian Food Studies, Food Summit, really had a lot of the people who eventually make their way into this book, but also just connections to uh, the stories that were being told in Appalachia, the new businesses, the new conversations about what a thriving and healthy Appalachia would be going forward. And a lot of that circled around food. And so Laura said, actually, what I'd like to do is edit an anthology that that brings that larger circle all to the page. Yeah. And Courtney, what's your role there in the Appalachian Food Summit? Uh, so I started out as a as an eager attendee and then uh, joined the planning committee for a uh, I'm just 
I was just pausing for a second because my dog, of course, decided to rattle his collar. Um, <laughs> um, and then I, I was on the planning committee for uh, the conference in Berea, which makes an appearance in this volume, Blue Ridge, the Blue Ridge Tacos, uh, that research was was part of that summit. Um, and then, yeah, they invited me to join the board. And I think it's just a really, a really natural relationship, you know, like as as has already been pointed out with Elizabeth and I both having these early connections with Ronnie, you know, I think the Appalachian food writing community is a very nurturing place and not even just writing, you know, the, the board is made up of, of chefs and scholars and, and people coming at it from a bunch of different angles, farmers. Um, but I, I think it is a very, it's a very supportive uh, group and we all have this very, we all have our different ways of kind of coming to this goal of, of helping this topic be more understood and more celebrated and more nuanced. And, and I think that's something that the book really highlights too, is just all of the different definitions of Appalachian food and, and the summit I think works to do that too. Well, and as Elizabeth mentioned a minute ago, Appalachian food is kind of hot right now. Yes. Uh, <laughs> several people sent me this, this article from Atlas Obscura a couple of weeks ago, the chef restoring Appalachia's world-class food culture. Um, you've had celebrity chefs and food TV specials. So what do you think drives that popular and the scholarly interest in Appalachian food and then Appalachia as a region? Elizabeth, do you want to go first? <laughs> I don't know. I was thinking Courtney should go okay. first, but I can take a stab at it. Okay. <laughs> you know, the one thing is that uh, food traditions in the U.S., uh, attention to them is cyclical. Yeah. So mm. uh, if you look at that amazing digital collection of uh, through the New York Public Library of menus from the 19th and 20th century, if you look at menus from resorts in Appalachia, so the Grove Park Inn, the the um, can, the big hotels in Asheville, for instance, um, if you look at those menus from around 1900, people were going there because they were fascinated absolutely by by the bells and whistles that a European chef could put on the table through their food, but also because of the local foods that were available in the mountains. And those menus read like menus we might see at, um, you know, the restaurant that article is describing today. They mm -hmm. describe where the food came from and, and who the farmers were and what location they're in and how they were grown. So, so I think we, we, might want to think of this as a new kind of fasc fascination with the local, a new kind of fascination with the places where we are connected to who grows our food and who, who cooks it and what that land is, what those mountains are around it. Uh, but it's not new. And uh, we're in a new moment of that. What I am excited about, particularly in attention to Appalachia right now, is though a recognition of the um, the, the complexities of the Appalachian Plate, the um, kind of real attention over time to fruits and vegetables and how best to let them shine, and a, a conversation about um, growing seasons and, and what can happen in the mountains that is a really nice way to sidestep what I find at least in the academic literature to be um, a uh, ultimately um, dead end kind of conversation about stereotypes 
I, I just, mm-hmm. it's, it's not the conversation we need to have. And at the same time, I think, uh, Courtney, you might want to add in some, some thoughts about uh, the dangers in suddenly being a hot or faddish food (laughs) for a moment. And there are really are some, and we try really hard to avoid those in this particular book. Absolutely. And I, and I think the book does a great job of avoiding them. Yeah. It's funny. I, I was thinking that my answer to this question really depends on kind of how cynical I'm feeling at any given time. And I think, I think, you know, as Elizabeth said, it is cyclical and it is very, um, it is very easy to get swept up in these kind of trends of like, oh, well, now everybody's into this and into that. And and for that to kind of cross this line, and this is something I think about a lot in my own writing, to kind of cross that line into sort of like fetishizing. Um, and I think that when that sort of gaze happens, there is a, a very implicit power imbalance that we kind of, I think, are all constantly trying to be aware of, of correcting. Um but but the attention is great in some ways too, and it and it has a lot of positive attributes. And I think when I'm being more optimistic and less cynical, I do also think that you know the kind of broader food consciousness has really embraced all of these um, sort of methods and philosophies around food that Appalachia has had for a very long time in terms of you know respect for the land and the ingredients, and and so I think kind of taking that longer view. Uh, maybe is aligning with this this sort of look looking into this region and saying like oh these people have been doing this for a long time too um but then yeah you know i think that like elizabeth said there are a lot of stereotype conversations that i feel i agree with you are dead end and don't don't really go anywhere and redirect the focus in a way that i think is counterproductive um and I think that it's really valuable to have volumes like this in the world and organizations like, you know, not to toot our own horns, but like the Appalachian Food Summit and, and the Southern Foodways Alliance and and folks who are trying to just kind of complicate those narratives all the time. And and I know for me personally, I've I mean, I've learned a ton. Um, it's complicated my own narratives and my own definitions of things for sure. Well, can we talk about the process of making the collection? So Elizabeth, you've already kind of alluded to um, how you and Laura were working on this together. There are academic essays here with citations and everything. Uh, There are poems, there are personal essays, there's essays based on oral histories, there are essays with illustrations that are adorable. Um, So what kind of what are you looking for, Elizabeth? and, And how did you choose what to include in the volume? Yeah, I'm glad you pointed to that, Carrie, because that was really important. I think that um, we we wanted to really think about the exchanges that can happen around tables when you sit down and tell stories. And like Courtney really, really rightfully pointed out, we don't want to be nostalgic or romantic about that. We want some of those stories to be hard. We want to acknowledge that not everybody has the same access to the table. but at the same time, when we when we started to really think about, well, how does that happen around tables in today's Appalachia? Um, the exciting conversations are the ones where people bring whatever their particular expertise is and speak in that voice. So it made sense that we wanted some poets using poetry 
to tell their stories about food. We wanted um, academics to use their ex- use those libraries, use that expertise to tell their stories about food. We wanted people to uh, talk really honestly about the journeys they've been on, the, the travel that they've done, and how that gave them insight into foods in the mountains. And we absolutely, you know, we wanted people who um, use use art to do it. And so indeed, how do, how do we put all those together on the page? I think one of the things that um, we can talk about in a, in a minute, but one of the things that really for me tied this collection together was in fact the designer who worked with us both on the cover and on the intros to each of the chapters. That too is a way that we're telling the story of this book. And that's not always the case in, you know, little collected anthologies from from academic presses. So it was exciting to get to work on that. Courtney, how did you come to be a contributor? Oh my goodness. Um I really <laughs> even know that I recall exactly at this point. Um, Magic. Magic. Yeah. Well, I had been um, doing some research about I was a recent Detroit transplant at that point. um, And I was doing a lot of research about the Hillbilly Highway um, because I had not heard of it until I moved there. And so I was kind of newly fascinated by this by this little corner of Appalachian history. Um, And then I think Elizabeth, were you, did you and I talk or did I talk to Laura? I think you and I might have talked. Courtney. I think we Is did. Yeah. yeah. And I think it was just, you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking into this thing and it just kind of grew from there. That's great. Um, Elizabeth, in the introduction and in so much of your work, you write really beautifully about the regions, again, many conflicting representations and expectations. Uh, And you open with this metaphor borrowed from Ursula K. Le Guin of a carrier bag theory of fiction. So maybe explain to listeners a little bit about what that (laughs) means uh, and how that idea shapes not just what's in the collection, but how you put it together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Ursula K. Le Guin is just an amazing, beautiful writer. She's a science fiction author. She's an essayist. Uh, as far as I know, she never spent any significant time in Appalachia. She lived uh, next to Mount St. Helens. She has a beautiful piece about living with that active volcano. Uh, so her life was Pacific Northwest. That's a very particular kind of mountain. But she has been among her many accomplishments, uh, she passed away probably five years ago now, but among her many accomplishments, she was picked up and celebrated by some of the earlier um, eco-critical writers and and scholars. And by that, I mean people recognize that the way she talked about the relationships between people and places really kind of foregrounded the wisdom that might be non-human. Um, and and thought about how how does that affect the kinds of lives that we can lead and our responsibilities to this planet? And I was really intrigued by that, and I, I have long really loved her essay, which is called "The Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction." But I had never really thought of it in terms of food studies. Um, but along the way with this collection, and actually, Courtney, I feel like it might have been the conversation that you and I had really early on where we were talking about if you're going to tell this story about Detroit and you're going to tell this story about this particular social club in Detroit, what could be one of the central metaphors to mm. tell that story? And, you know, we had, we had played with the highway, right? We had played with movement, but it, it's a little um, 
and it's fantastic that shines through your essay, but but it wasn't quite enough to kind of hang the piece on in relation to other pieces. And we ended up talking a lot about the Cool Whip containers. Right. <laughs> and maybe Courtney, will you tell that story so that I don't try Please. to put it in your words? Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I I end up in my essay uh kind of becoming friendly with this um social club in Detroit, the Kentuckians of Michigan, uh, that's been that's been a a, a kind of institution for folks who migrated up um, for for decades now, and I went to one of their dinners um, and was sent home with like an empty cool whip container of soup beans, which was very funny to me because that was what my grandmother always kept soup beans in. And so, like, I got home and I texted a picture of it to my cousins, and I was like, I can't believe this is happening. Um, and uh, yeah, so and and that's right because uh, Elizabeth and I, you know, as as we were talking about this essay and uh, this essay, and she was kind of thinking about the whole collection, we, you know, there were a lot of conversations about like, well, what are the, so what are these objects? You know, what's, what are the things in this bag? Um, and, and that was just such a distinctive uh, element to that story that that ended up being what we focused on. And I agree a hundred percent that works much better than the, than the highway metaphor. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I love also just that you got Ursula K. Le Guin into this book. <laughs> So then uh, thinking about that with Courtney, that's what really reminded me of that Ursula K. Le Guin piece. So the, the carrier bag theory of fiction, she, she's really, she's using some psychoanalysis. That's, that's not my area. I don't usually, uh, doesn't usually inspire me. But in this piece, she's thinking about the stories, the, the shape of novels. And um, Le Guin really has on her mind that the, um, Typical celebrated novel, uh, and she was writing this essay in the 1980s, still very much followed the um, line of an arrow, you know, rising action, a big crisis, a denouement, it's the arrow falls. And she's pointing out that that's a very masculine and solo and individual way to tell a story. And instead, she says the novels that she likes are the ones that are more like a carrier bag, that it's it's a vessel and you put all the characters in there and you put all the things that they're carrying in there and you put the seeds and the fruits and the vegetables and the, the nuts and the grains and they just all rub up against each other. And, and some action happens when, when some characters come in contact with others and then some uh, moments of reflection happen and then things get all mixed up and you go at it again. And Le Guin is really poetically pointing out how much that reminds her of the way she lives her life, the way that we can live in um, proximity to each other both as humans and as animals and the plants and foods that we eat. And so it's just a really pretty vision of, of a different way of telling stories. And when I went back then and looked at it, I realized, and I just alluded to this, just how much food is in that essay. And it was so curious to me that we've never talked about it in terms of food studies, but she starts it off with those nuts and seeds and berries. Uh, and in some ways, it's describing a lot of what Appalachian food looks like. So I ended up kind of riffing off of that. But what to me was more important in that story or in that metaphor from her is, in fact, the people and the objects. And it led us to a kind of different organization for an anthology than sometimes happens. 
so uh, Ronnie Lundy and I actually spent a long weekend together um, here in Chapel Hill. At that point, we had all the essays and they were like Courtney's. They were amazing. They were really interesting. And we each of the essays um, was organized around an object, whether it's a ladle or a canning jar or the Cool Whip container or a frozen dinner, um, all kinds of objects. And Ronnie and I started to think about, well, how are we going to organize this into an anthology? How, how do you decide what, what goes in front of which one? How do, you, how do you make your way through it? And it became just really um, important to me that we carry that metaphor of the carrier bag through the organization of the anthology also. So um, there's not subsections. There's not formal introductions to each of the essays. There's not uh, a, a feeling that you must read, you know, page 10 before you could possibly turn to page 132 because you have to know one before you know the other. Uh, and so we tried to set up the anthology as an invitation to just let things rub up against each other, find your own way through it. Um, go back and forth, go in circles, put put unexpected pieces up against each other, think about all of the objects that are in that bag, and then think about what your food story is and how the objects that you carry and the things that have meaning to you might be part of this story too. So knowing that you purposefully tried not to draw any connections, uh, could you draw some connections <laughs> between the <laughs> What are some of the connecting themes or ideas that you saw emerge from the process of letting them bump against each other accidentally. Yeah. Can we ask Courtney to answer that first? Because I'm just really interested to know if it works for somebody else to look at it. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, it's something I was thinking about as, as you were giving that beautiful explanation, Elizabeth, is how the... Well, and and a real quick digression before I I answer that directly. Another thing that I love about invoking Ursula K. Le Guin and this theory, especially regarding all the other things that we've already been talking about with Appalachian, the the problematic storytelling and stereotypes is, is so much of her thinking around that, I believe, and that idea of the arrow and the arc being so masculine is thinking beyond conflict as an organizational structure. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I really love this idea of not, you know, I think it can be, and I I have been very guilty of this too, in writing about Appalachia, you you kind of focus on pain until the pain is the identity. And, and, you know, I think that the the collection does a very good job of complicating that. Um, And, and to that end, I think the objects that that are chosen as, as disparate as they are, they do all kind of have this everydayness that is very, um, I don't know, there's something that, that really lifts up, I think, any individual experience where you can be, as a reader, looking through it and think maybe, oh, like kind of me with the Cool Whip container, like, oh, I didn't realize this was a thing. And I didn't realize that I could be like, proud of this or excited about this in quite the same way. And that sounds a little hokey. That's not quite what I mean. But you know, like, it, I think that we can have these really profound experiences with food and read them as very kind of quotidian. And so I love that this collection really celebrates all of these individual, like, things that maybe on their face are not so significant, but they we we bring great significance to them. We took it 
we brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Yeah, well said. Elizabeth yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. And, and I think that the, the second piece of this I would really um, lift up is that I, it was important to me. It was important to Laura. And I, I think I can speak for you, Courtney, but also the other people in the book. It was important for everyone in the book to, um, if we're going to use the word contemporary with Appalachia, we wanted this book to look like the Appalachia that we walk around in right. and and experience on a daily basis and and love. And so, um, you know, it's important here that there's uh, um, a contemporary Cherokee author who's a school teacher in Western North Carolina who's here. It's important that there's a African American sociologist who has done more than three hundred interviews with um, people who's who trace their family to a town in eastern Kentucky, but who have been part of the Black diaspora, both out of Appalachia and now back into Appalachia. Uh, and Carita Brown's book uh, essay is really about what food stories people carry with them and then bring back. It was important that we talk about Blue Ridge Tacos. And, and when the Details that I love in Dan Margulis's piece is that there's this kind of really um, poignant fact that spaces in Appalachia are so deeply shared. So a camping ground that has been the site of a really long running and famous bluegrass old time music festival is also a really well known, really well populated uh, place for yearly rodeos and for for taquerias to pop up uh, to support that. Uh, and so, you know, thinking about um, who we are, and, and that's a broad and expansive we. And I said that that's contemporary, but of course, that stretches into our past too. And when we really start to talk about that Appalachia, then, then we have a lot more voices. And that's a table I do want to go and sit at. Yeah, so um, I'll to several of the pieces, but especially Courtney, uh, your piece is a little bit about being Appalachian outside of what might geographically be thought of as Appalachia. Um, you write really beautifully about that push and pull of regional identity when we live in a global, mobile kind of world. Um, so what do you think uh, your essay and adds to that theme to the collection? Oh, well, thank you. Um well, I hope it it adds to that idea of, you know, again, that kind of broadening of the definition. And, and I know that that that's a big personal kind of struggle for me and, and something that comes up a lot in my writing. And, and especially, you know, when I first started exploring Appalachian food culture as a topic, sort of really trying to understand if I belonged and where I belonged. Um, and I think that something that I was trying to do was say, you know, there are a lot of different ways that that looks and there are maybe, um, there are maybe situations in which, uh, I don't know, I'm not, me. sorry. What's that? <laughs> oh, sorry. <Jeff. laughs> 
clearly getting fussy. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> where, you know, I've, I've always struggled with this idea of, I love this place so much and, and I don't, you know, I do happen to live back in Appalachia now, but I didn't for a long time. And that disconnect was really kind of fertile writing ground for me. And so I think, I think what I was trying to do with my essay was, was think about how that identity exists outside of the place and, and sort of what you, you know, you have to, you have to kind of present yourself. We well, you don't have to, but it, but it happens that you present yourself differently often um, when you're, when you're kind of in contrast with your surroundings. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think that difference, and, you know, I think a lot, a lot of essays in the book speak to that in, in different ways. Um, and that's essay beautifully, Karita's, um, so, so I hope that I'm kind of adding to that conversation of, of what does this look like um, outside the region and, and what does that mean, you know, for you personally, if you are that person outside the region? Yeah, I think my favorite line, which I will be citing soon in a thing that I write is um, the color of my soup beans versus the color of your soup beans only matters when we're both in a third place talking about our soup beans. Uh, that seems to me to encapsulate a lot about what we mean when we talk about food and authenticity and region and identity. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that's totally it. And for me, that was such a huge, you know, I I left Appalachia as fast as I could when I was 21. <laughs> and then I just, then I became fascinated with it. And that idea, you know, I've wondered before, well, if I had never left, what would my sense of identity be? And and I think that's a, mm-hmm. it's a tricky question. Plenty of people, of course, who stay in the region and have very rich relationships with their conception of their identity. And, you know, plenty of the people in this collection fit that description. Um, but, but I wonder, you know, the way that my kind of evolution and my path toward this, this topic, um, I, I, I think about that a lot. Like what, what, is my relationship with Appalachia richer for having left it? And I think that's a really interesting and difficult question. Yeah, and that I think we very have familiar to me. We yeah. have some folks also taking the other side of that. So, so Mike Crowley's piece, where he's talking about the piece, kicks off in the 1980s, and he's talking about the first Taco Bell to come to Corbin, Kentucky, but yes. it becomes also a piece about his Korean American family and the kind of discovery of the compatibility between, for instance, kimchi and soup beans. Um, I think that Saranda Gonzalez's piece also talking about the kind of um, Spanish Asturian food traditions and how they have such kind of corn and bean and green overlap with Appalachian food traditions that they saw when her grandparents were newly immigrated to Appalachia and all of it is just sort of pushing at that there's not a uh, there's not a pure kind of food tradition and that yeah. that is the strength that's the point that's the that's where it gets really interesting yeah as a texan who briefly lived in west virginia and now resides in Pittsburgh and writes about the U.S. South. Uh, I still found a lot in the collection to really relate to personally. Um, When I first started talking about studying cookbooks, uh, a family friend brought to me her family's heirloom um, household searchlight cookbook that Laura Ah. writes about. I have one of those in my collection. Uh, I've made the trip to Helvetia. Uh, mm-hmm. I grew up gardening and canning and making chow chow, like a lot of the people in this collection. Uh, so who do you really expect to be the ideal audience for this? 
I, all those people, I, you know, I, yeah, I think cool. that, <laughs> I think that, um, the metaphor of the table is the right metaphor, right? That, that it is mm-hmm. whoever is sitting at a table. I, I get, I get frustrated that, um, I get frustrated that sometimes in the United States, we, we feel like, um, the readership for a book needs to be directly in that place at that moment. And, and, mm. you know, I, I was the kid in the public library reading books that came from the furthest possible away place, but also my, my godmother who, um, was she, she dropped out of high school when her, uh, family's um, town was drowned by the TVA and she had to move to town and, and support herself. Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, but she's the person who gave me my first Margaret Atwood book, but also my first Wilma Dykeman book. So mm-hmm. Appalachia and uh, Canada. And, you know, I think mm-hmm. that any reader is invited to find themselves in a collection like this. We all eat, we all talk to each other. We all, I wish that we could do both of those things with some more thoughtfulness sometimes. And (laughs) sometimes we just hope that we can, uh, you know, feed ourselves and move on with our day. All of those are the stories we're telling. I think that um, Erica Locklear's piece is really interesting for that. She is, she is actually the author in the collection. who talks the most about um, what you might expect if you picked up an Appalachian food book and all you had done was um, think about the pop culture representations of Appalachia. So she talks a little bit about ramps. She talks a little bit about um, uh, bear meat and those kinds of things. But the way Erica is talking about it is to say that the food traditions in her family coming through her grandmother, you might expect to be the most connected to those, but are really about the ways that her grandmother created community and uh, ritual around serving food to people, cooking food and serving food. And so the object in that piece is actually the uh, frozen dinner bought at the local grocery store that nonetheless was so important when her grandmother could no longer cook a three-course meal, she still wanted to share food with people as she was in relation with. So that three-course frozen dinner from the grocery store is coming from where? Iowa and probably some ingredients from South America and maybe was, Mm -hmm. you know, created in a factory in, I don't know, Kansas, New Jersey, where, you know, could be anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that doesn't matter. What matters is, is the invitation to be in that conversation with people. So here's a big question I'd love to hear both of you kind of hear your take on. I noticed that nearly all the essays from the most academic to the most journalistic, um, most of them have a personal eye narrator somewhere within them, uh, that the author's personal experiences and personal ethos are central to the argument of the essay. Um, That's not special to your collection either, but I think broadly true of writing in food studies broadly, including my own. Um, so I wonder for each of you, what do you think th- about this move that we make? Why do we do that? Have we borrowed it from popular food writing in the academic world or does it have a purpose? Uh, what do you think about that? 
Maybe Courtney go first. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you know, I think for me, I just kind of can't help writing that way. I think so much of my nonfiction writing is like just just interrogates this idea of identity so much that I kind of can't take myself out of it. And sometimes I feel a little solipsistic for it. But um, I think. I think, you know, I don't know. I think it is inviting in a, in a collection like this to have, um, you know, because again, extending that table metaphor, it's like, it's the conversation, you know, it's not, um, it's not necessarily just a, a way to deliver information. It's, it's a way to tell, tell stories and tell stories about each other to each other. And, and so I don't know, I think it, it just, it feels very natural to me um, to approach the subject that way. And but I think I think the danger, and I think that something that the book does really well is you have to you have to put that in some kind of context, right? You can't just say, "Here's my experience," and and call that a day. You know, you you ideally the best pieces really kind of try to find find connections or find larger themes, and and so I think I think maybe again that that idea that food is something that we all have a, have a connection with. It's, it is very inviting to, to kind of approach it from that, with that first person. Um, I can't speak to the academic side as well, uh, of course, but, but that's my take, I think, from my, my corner of the essay writing world. Yeah, Elizabeth, what do you think? Well, and Courtney, I think you did speak to that academic side really well. Um, and I would just pick up on a part of what you said there, which is that if and I, in an essay, is used performatively to stop conversation. Mm. That, to me, is less interesting, especially when it's in a collection like this. Mm -hmm. And I hope that all the eyes in this collection are invitations to conversation. I have seen this. I am, I am standing here. Here is the context around me. Where are you? What is your context? What would you add? What if I missed? What else do I need to think about? Um, so, so to me, that's that's a generative eye, and and that's the kind I I hope that we land on. I also, as an editor, you know, in in a role that I was playing with this book, um, I never want to put pressure on an author to reveal things that they're not comfortable revealing. Mm -hmm. I, I think that um, that too is a kind of end of a conversation rather than a beginning of a conversation. And I think then that involves a lot of trust between authors and editors and readers and the kinds of uh, exchanges that we can honestly and truly have. That's a kind of invitation to learn from each other. And I was just in a, a really great conversation yesterday with some of the um, uh, leaders in North Carolina from the SNCC movement. Um, and one of the things we spent time talking about was the kind of vulnerability it takes to learn in public, to not know in public mm -hmm. together. And I think that particularly around uh, trying to tell each other's stories of food, we have to not know 
We have to not know and then experience what the other person's voice is. Uh, to me, that makes good scholarship. It makes good reading. And it, it, may, it does what I always hope a book can do, which is begin a series of exchanges, not end them. I love that idea of the generative eye. I think that's so beautifully put. And like, I, I completely agree with you. It's that, it's that thing of, you know, it lets you claim the story, you know, cause that, that's, that's also such a big part. You know, you can't get around that when you talk about Appalachian writing is the ability to claim a narrative. Um, mm-hmm. But it doesn't, it doesn't claim it in an authoritarian way. It doesn't shut down any kind of, additional ownership. You know, it is inviting, but it's also saying, well, this is mine and I, and I'm, I'm kind of planting my flag in it, but I, I want you to come in as well. Yeah. And Carrie, I feel like actually you have a lot to talk to us about on that topic too, because in some of your investigations of authenticity, some of those conversations are generative and, and some of them are perhaps designed not to be right are designed to stop. Truly, yeah. And, and I was thinking as you were both talking that the the sheer variety of people who can claim an I, uh, I hold an Appalachian identity is something that is by nature generative, right? The more people who can fit in that or claim that identity or live in that experience, uh, the more broad and open um, the conversation seems to be. So inevitably, any collection also has gaps, so maybe Elizabeth, you could start. What might not be included that readers would expect to find, um, or are there other viewpoints on Appalachia that aren't represented? Well, that's such an excellent question. <laughs> you know, I, so at a certain point, uh, Laura and I had a conversation about um, how do we. What, what do we do about geographical representation here? Is there, is there enough mm-hmm. Tennessee? What about that little bit of South Carolina? How do we think about, um, you know, uh, how far do the Appalachian Mountains go up into where you are, Carrie? Do they go up into Pennsylvania? <laughs> how about New York State? How about, how about Canada? I don't know. What about Alabama, mm-hmm. right? How about, <laughs> where do they go? Um, and, and indeed, there, there, um, we didn't, set this collection up to say, oh, well, if we have three stories about Kentucky, we better make sure we have three stories about North Carolina or whatever that might be. Um, mm-hmm. Because we we were trying to keep our eye more on uh, what are the ways of telling stories? Who are the people telling stories? Who are the exciting people that we'd want to have, you know, at this uh, metaphorical dinner party that we'd sit down with? Um, so, so I think, uh, I didn't quite answer your question, but I, but that is to say that we um, we recognize that there's there's so much uh, physical space in Appalachia. Courtney's piece is so good about people carry a vision of Appalachia with them as they travel, and not all of those are represented. Um, but I hope that in the kind of um, accumulation here and in the invitation to approach this as a collection where you are adding your own story, that uh, we, we get a little bit of grace from people so that they can see themselves here, even if their particular favorite definition of Appalachia mm. um, is not directly on the page. 
And, and if that is the case, then I would hope that people would reach out to us and share those stories. I'm, I'm easy to find. Tell me what your story is. I want to hear it. <laughs> well, what do you think is maybe the future of Appalachian food studies? Are there, what are some of the next areas that food scholars can and maybe should direct their attention? Courtney, you go. I think you have you have your finger on the pulse of. Oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, I think just kind of speaking from my from my curiosities and my interests, I'm thinking a lot right now um, in you know creative writing projects that I'm working on, and also just watching my friends kind of exist in the world. I'm thinking a lot about in people, um, you know, I have a lot of friends who have inherited land that maybe has gone, gone fallow and they kind of are trying to like get these, these homesteads sort of back up or up operational. And they have, they also have this conflict between like, is this what I want to be doing? But this land is very important to me. And, and so I think that next generation, um, you know, we've, we've been, we've had this pendulum swing as, as it happens with everything where, you know. I think a lot about how my mom's generation, you know, she's, my mom's very much like this kind of convenience cook, you know, and contrasting that with my grandmother, who is very much this from scratch cook and sort of now me falling somewhere in the middle. And so I think kind of really like articulating what this sort of generation and what the the next generation is going to do to further and broaden that definition of, of Appalachian food is super interesting to me. Elizabeth, what do you think? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And I, I love the the beginnings of that that you start to see in this collection. I think that Laura speaks really um, persuasively about that at the end of her collection, which which or her piece, which Carrie, as you pointed out, begins with this kind of grandmother's cookbook, but ends with um, who are these new chefs? Who are these people who are thinking about... Um, what can be grown and how to how to do that in a way that helps families thrive, um, and so all of that is really interesting to me. And I think that I would add to that that um, I personally am always interesting in the place where things are messy. I just I like mm-hmm. the I like the hard stories and the complicated stories. And so you know I think that. Um, Someday, someone is going to write uh, the book about um, small companies in Appalachia, like the Stokely Canning Company, which has real connections to Wilma Dykeman and are one of our just premier Appalachian novelists, but you know, has this story of a widowed woman trying to figure out how to support her family, and she ends up doing it through building a canning company, and, and yet also, uh, you know, who are those people who worked in those factories? Who are the people who work in the factories in Appalachia today? What's the what's the abundance of food, and what's the uh, what are the um, barriers to access to food? What are the languages that we talk about food in? How do how do we how do we really think about all those things together? How do we demonstrate to each other that we're paying attention? So so all of that is interesting to me. Um, and at the same time, I think we're going to have to tell the stories of what's not working in this particular moment. I, I love the mm-hmm. stories of hopefulness and I want to read them, but I also want to know, um, you know, we need some ideas that are going to scale. We need some ideas that are really going to take on um, 
climate change. The mountains are really vulnerable to climate change. I want to read those stories. What's happening in Appalachian food that's going to help us understand that? So maybe a good follow-up question is, what are you working on next? (laughs) (laughs) Courtney, what are you you working on right now? Uh, I'm working on a novel um, that touches on a lot of these things, actually. Uh, And and it started with the Hillbilly Highway inspiration and and thinking about, yeah, a a lot of the things we've been talking about, carrying that identity and and what does that look like and how does it evolve over time and, and how does one come to feel about the choices that they've made. Um, and it also touches on these ideas of, of environmental activism and seeing, you know, where that succeeds, but, but maybe where it doesn't. And, um, and I'm, yeah, I'm really excited about it as a place to just kind of think all of these thoughts together in the same place. Um, all this stuff that I, that I love wondering about anyway. Um, so that's, that's my major project. Elizabeth, what's next? That seems fair, right? We couldn't start with Ursula K. Le Guin and not end with environmental activism. I think that that Mm -hmm. she she would need us to do that. It's really important. Um, For me personally, I guess I'm working on a couple of projects. One one is a um, project that began when uh, Diane Flint, who uh, runs Foggy Ridge Cider um, in Virginia, came to me and said, hey, there's a story of heritage southern apples that um, my mentor has really started her her mentor was was a man named lee calhoun who lived in north carolina uh, and then uh, that she is carrying forward actually in her own writing but also in a collaboration with our archives here at unc where we're really trying to uh, think about what the story of apples are in appalachia in the south um, I think they have a lot to tell us. Uh, so I'm doing a couple of projects around that. And then I'm working on a project about the story of boarding houses across the South. And that to me is one of those messy stories. It's one of the places where we get uh, some of our earliest cookbooks. It's also one of the places where people could uh, reinvent themselves over time. And so I find it just a fascinating place to look and walk in and sit down at a table. I cannot wait to talk to you about that book. Uh, me too, Carrie. Yes. <laughs> I can't wait for it to be done. <laughs> Let's hurry that up. <laughs> Today we've been talking with Elizabeth Inglehart, one of the editors of the new collection, The Food We Eat, The Stories We Tell, Contemporary Appalachian Tables uh, from Ohio University Press, and with Courtney Ballister, one of the uh, contributors of the volume. Thank you both so much for talking to me today. You're two of my favorite people to talk about food with. Oh, Carrie, this is so Likewise. much fun. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening.